will be one that is about going back to the beginnings. We're at the beginning of a new year. Today marks the start of 2023. And today as we gather as the Church of Jesus Christ, we are gathered as the called out ones. We are not only called out, but we are called to be together. And today being New Year's, as we are gathered as the Church of Jesus Christ in this place. It is a day that we often think and look ahead at the year to come. Some people make resolutions. I don't. Uh, but uh, if I did, I would just take some from Jonathan Edwards. Um, but as we think about the year to come, it is a time of looking forward with anticipation, uh, with hopes and dreams and goals maybe to accomplish in this year. But also when we think about the new year, it's also a time where we look back. We look back on the, the year that has passed. We can think uh, back on the kind providence of God throughout the, the, the year, the many blessings that we have received um, and, and reflecting on. And so as I was thinking about this idea of moving, looking forward in the new year and also looking back on the goodness of God, I thought it'd be fitting that we would look back even further than a year, that we would go all the way back to the beginning this morning and consider from God's word the beginning of it all found in Genesis chapter three. Follow along with me. Beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And as they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool, in the garden, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let us pray. Father, we 
come before you now, submitting ourselves under your word. And we do pray that the ministry of your word applied by your spirit would make an impact upon our lives. As we look back on this, one of the darkest days in human history, or may we see the shining hope of the gospel even in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we embark upon this new year, I want to remind you of this old message, this timeless message from of old. So that in looking backwards to Genesis, we can make sense of the present in which we live and we can have hope for the future. Beginning here in Genesis chapter 3, just to set the scene, we're all familiar with this. If there's a heading in your Bible, it might say the fall. This is when it all went down. Adam and Eve have been created, not perfect, but innocent in the garden. They've been given dominion. The dominion mandate has been given to them to be fruitful, multiply, to rule. They're God's representatives. They are the image bearers of God. It is the creatures that have been created where God looks and says, this is very good. And that is chapter two, the end of chapter one to two. And then we get to chapter three. And we have this dark day in human history. One of the darkest days in human history. And in the outline that you don't have supplied, I want to give you three headings that we would consider this morning. First, I want us to consider the deception of sin, verses 1 through 7. I want us to notice here the, the, the progressive downgrade of this conversation between the serpent and the woman, verses 1 through 7. We read that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And I want you to notice here the first stage in the deception of sin. It starts with doubting God. Doubting God, you see, the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree? The first tactic that the serpent had was to get the woman to doubt. This has been the the strategy or the tactic of the evil one in every generation. It is the age-old question. Did God actually say? Dot, dot, dot. Fill it in. The word of God has been under attack from the very beginning. And every generation must be able to rise up and defend the word of God. That yes, God did in fact actually say. You see this through the 19th century and into the 20th century with liberalism and the word of God being under attack. Where we stand and say, yes, God actually said, yes, the word of God is infallible. It is inerrant. We hold to the trustworthiness of God's revelation to us in his word. But he wants to sow doubt in the woman to cause her to be skeptical of God's revealed word spoken. So the deception of sin starts with sowing doubt, doubting God, which leads to verses two through four, denying God, denying God. God. Eve responds inaccurately here. She adds to God's command, lest you touch it. But you see the tactic of the serpent here. 
Or verse, verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The serpent is outright denying the word of God. That God said, the day that you hear this, you will die. The serpent says, no, that's actually not true. The deception of sin goes from doubting God to denying God. To get Eve to think, well, I'm not sure that's exactly what God's word means. So, from doubt to skepticism to a denial from the serpent leads to verse 5. Disobeying God. This is a preposterous claim here. Look at your text here. Verse 5. The serpent says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. That's a true statement. And that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Think about the logic here. What the serpent is actually telling the woman is that in order to be like God, you must disobey God. This is preposterous. In order to be like him, you must disobey him. This is the deception of sin, is it not? This is the power of temptation. And we see that temptation is now rising to the surface in Eve. You want to be like God? Well, there's an appeal to someone. And it gives rise to this, the desire of self. Look at verse 6. The desire of self. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. There are three areas of emphasis here that Moses would give in writing this that I want us to consider. And it parallels very well to what John says in his epistle. Let me remind you in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17, through 17, he writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And here it is. Follow along. For all that is in the world is the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not from the Father, but is from the world. Consider here what drove Eve in her temptation to eat of the fruit. You see here in verse 6, she sees that it was good for food. It tastes good. This is the desire of the flesh. Not only that, but it was also a delight to the eyes. It looks good. The desire of the eyes. And she also saw that it was to make one wise. This was to satisfy the longings of her heart. It is the pride of life to be like God. And so when the desires in her, the desires of herself took control, we see the outcome. Self-desire won the day here. She took the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate as well. So here we have it. Here we have it. In these six verses, it is the betrayal of the ages. Paradise lost. The fall of humanity. 
And we ask the question, why did they fall? And being good theologians, we might say, well, this is the eternal decree of God. Yes, absolutely. Because for the covenant of redemption to take place, yes, absolutely. But according to this text right here, we ask the question, why did they fall? And what we can see here is that in the moment of temptation, the desire for self-gratification, self-fulfillment, and self-exaltation was greater than their desire to obey the commands of God. They wanted it all. They wanted to exalt themselves. So in the moment of temptation, the competing desires to obey God or to exalt self, they chose the strongest desire in that moment, and it was for themselves. Why did they fall? Because they chose to. Responsibility falls upon our first parents. Ultimately, it's Adam, but they fall. Lest we should look back with any chronological snobbery, if we were there, we would have done the same thing. It is true of us, is it not? The reason why we give into temptation, as a result, sin, it's not just because, hey, that's my nature, or I'm just... I was I'm prone to that. Well, that's well, certainly true, but no. If you are in Christ, you've been given a new nature. The reason why we give into temptation and ultimately we sin is because our desire for self exceeds our desire for God. Period. There's no other reason. And so we must recognize that even in ourselves. This is why they fell. But notice here in verse 7, the resolution. This is the resolution that they seek to take after the fall. We notice here that they tried to fix their own problem. They tried to fix their problem on their their own. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They realized they had committed a grave sin. They decided to take their matters into their own hands. They covered themselves to hide their shame, to try to do better. Do you know what's happening here in verse 7? It's the beginning of man-made religion. They seek to make their own religion here. And ever since then, since this time here, verse 7, man has always sought to clothe themselves, to better themselves. If we were making up our own religion, what would it be like? Live a good life? Try to do better? Because the the default mode is morality. Brothers and sisters, morality is just a band-aid on the pathway to hell. They sought to do better, to cover themselves. We recognize that sinful man can do nothing to fix himself. And this is the deception of sin. It starts with doubting God and it ends with creating your own religion. And we look at this, we get to verse 7 and we must ask the question, can it get any worse? Can this day here in the garden get any worse? And in fact, the answer is yes. It does get worse. Look now at verses 8 through 13 the consequence of sin. We've started with the deception of sin. Now we must see the consequence of sin. And first is the internal consequence of sin. 
Verse eight, the first one I would supply for you is guilt. The first internal consequence of sin is almost like the knee-jerk reaction. It is guilt. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What's happening here? They hear God and they run from God. Like cockroaches, when you would turn the light on in a dark place, they scurry to the corners so they would not be seen. Why? As John would tell us in John 3, 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. Sinners prefer darkness. In my home, we're raising a tribe of children. And I often think that what tends to happen is that when one child hurts another child, it's never the guilty party that comes running in confession usually. It's always the hurt child. It it just seems to be that way. Why? Because guilty people want to hide. It is natural in them to run and hide when they've done something wrong. I have to be the one that goes and pursues the guilty one in correction and love. Sometimes guilty people hide in plain sight. Sometimes they hide behind a mask. They hide in the dark. They hide through lies. They try to drown their guilt in liquor or drugs. They just try to forget about it through sex or false promises. Anything to suppress the truth that is in them and that the guilt that they feel. So understand that the first consequence of sin internally is guilt. Oh, but a glorious truth, verse 9, God pursues the guilty. God pursues the guilty. A second consequence we would see of sin, not just guilt in verse 8, but we would see fear. Fear in verse 10. Adam (coughs) says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Oh, we can't put ourselves in Adam's shoes, but as I even thought about the the feeling, that sense that overcame Adam in that moment, never in his existence had he ever felt this before, this terror of God. This isn't the healthy fear. This is the absolute terror of God. After he eats of this fruit, you know the moment he eats, he says, oh no, I should never have done this. Now his relationship with the Almighty is completely different. And he is terrified of the creator he once walked with in the garden. The dread of God overcomes Adam. I think we can relate to this in some form. Have you ever done something sinful? You just wanted to run and hide. Full of fear. And oftentimes, if we do feel that way, it's usually towards another human, let alone a holy God. Growing up, my brother and I were troublemakers, big-time troublemakers. We got into trouble too much. And we used to hear these dreaded words, wait until your father comes home. That was terrifying. At 8.30 in the morning, it was no big deal. We had all day until... Dad was coming home. But once 4.30 rolled around, you could feel the 
fear swelling up inside of us. We'd be looking out the window, not wanting to see that Oldsmobile come in. We were sinners in the hands of an angry dad in this moment, and we were terrified. The dread of examination and discipline was coming. That's a fear. That's a fear because we are sinful. That was a fear because we are guilty. That is a result of the fall. The fear of terror before a holy and just God caused Adam to run away and hide. He should have been running to God, not away from him. Sin causes us to do crazy things. A third internal consequence of sin we would see here is right after in verse 10. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. It's shame. Shame. The combination of Adam's guilt, fear, and shame caused him to run away from the one he should have run to. You know, we wear clothes because we're sinners. I don't know if we've really put too much of our theology of clothing in, but we wear clothes because these are sin coverings. It is to cover us up from our shame. It's also a reminder of our shame. You know, here in the West, especially in North America, we've made a multi-million dollar industry over sin coverings. We rate people based off of the quality of their sin coverings. You gotta dress up nicer on certain occasions, put nicer sin coverings on. God clothes them, but they, he clothes Adam first in his own sake, tries to clothe himself. We would see later on in this passage, God graciously clothes them, but an understanding of nakedness is a result of the fall and its shame. So when we consider these three consequences of sin, fear, guilt, and shame, we need to recognize that these three consequences have permeated our entire world, our entire existence. They're they're in our DNA, in our cultures. There are three dominant cultures in the world. Any student of uh, global studies maybe preparing for the mission field would, would be taught this in their first or second year. There's the guilt and innocence cultures. Those are found largely in the West, North America, Europe. The highest value is law and justice. This is why when we hear justification by faith alone declared not guilty, I mean, yes, Luther says it is the doctrine in which the church rises and falls. We agree. And we can relate to this very much so because this forensic declaration of not guilty, it appeals to our understanding of guilt and innocence. There's also the shame and honor cultures of this world, largely in the Middle East, some in Northern Africa, Asia. The highest value values in the, these cultures are honor and shame. This is why if it's okay in these cultures to lie if it protects the honor of the family. Now, we would say that's preposterous. You're breaking the law. Yeah, because we are, we are guilt and innocence people, and they are breaking the law. This is why in a Muslim context, To be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit will bring shame to the family. They can truly relate what it means to be hated by mother and father, to carry their cross, because it might very well be a death sentence because of the shame and honor. Then there's the fear and power cultures, largely in Africa, tribal communities, parts of South America. 
And when we think about these dominant cultures in our world, they can be traced all the way back to the Garden of Eden. They're the consequence of sin. And so as we've considered here the deception of sin, the internal consequences that fell upon Adam and, 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 and as a result, Eve, we have to look now after we've gotten through verse 10 and 11. And we're thinking, can it get any worse than this? Surely this dark day, we have false religion. We have hiding from God, guilt, fear, shame. And the answer is, brothers and sisters, yes. Yes, it does get even worse than this. There's one final act here in these couple verses left to be played out that demonstrates the utter depravity of sinful creatures. And it is the most scandalous statement I believe made in all of the Bible. And it's in verse 12. It is the external consequences of sin. It's what I've titled the blame game. God is asking Adam these questions, not because he needs to learn something, but it is to elicit the response out of Adam. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that you were commanded not to eat? And then comes this verse. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. This is scandalous. If we pause and think about what is actually going on here, the audacity of Adam to utter these words is preposterous. What he basically does is takes his clenched fist, holds it up to heaven and says, it's the woman that you gave me. What is he saying here? God, it's your fault that this happened. If you didn't give me this woman, this wouldn't have occurred. We could just think back a chapter before. He's, he's naming all the animals. There's an elephant, there's a male, there's a female, there's a, there's a, a rhinoceros, a male and a female, and he's going through it all. And Adam's left saying, well, where's mine? Where's my help me? There's two of each. There's one of me. And God in his gracious, and kind, gracious kindness providence puts him to rest. Out of his side, he forms a woman. We know the Hebrew word for, for male is ish. The, the, the Hebrew word for woman is isha. He, he exclaims this as he beholds this, the most beautiful creature he'd ever seen in his life. And he, he can't even help himself. He breaks out into a song. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. He is so smitten by Eve. This is chapter two. And in a matter of one chapter, he's got his fist clenched and he's blaming God for the woman. This is wickedness. This is absolute wickedness. It is as though in this moment, all of heaven goes silent. The whole cosmos stops. What did this creature who was just made out of dirt, who, who had the, the breath of Ruah of, 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 of God, the breath of life, breathe into his nostrils, this very image bearer, has the audacity to look at the creator and utter these words? We should read in verse 13, and then the Lord God smote out Adam. And then Adam was no more. 
They ceased to exist. He was incinerated under the furious wrath of God against this sin. The woman that you gave me. This is Adam's rebellion. Unwilling to own his own sin. And if it's not just God's fault, it's also her fault too. You gave her, she made me, so I ate. He's bl- it's the blame game. <clears throat> I wish we would understand. I wish he would have understood too in this. Adam, no, it's all your fault. It's 100% your fault. Adam, you were given charge. You were to disciple your wife. You have been given dominion. You are the colossal failure in all of this. You should have been offering your life as a substitute for your wife. After she ate of that, you shouldn't have even let the situation occur. You were standing right next to her this whole time. While this dialogue with the serpent and the woman, that dialogue should never have happened. Adam should have stood between the serpent and the woman and said, you will not talk to my wife that way. You will not lead her into deception. You will be quiet. God did actually say, and that's enough. No, Adam took the back seat, allowed the blasphemy to occur, and then took part in it. What is interesting is what is not said between verses 12 and 13. The silence of God towards Adam, Adam's blame shifting, is deafening. There's more grace found between verses 12 and 13 than there is water in the ocean. It's as though God's not going to respond to Adam. This terrible thing that Adam has done, God's not going to enter into that dialogue with Adam. He just turns to the woman and says, what have you done? And she passes the blame too. The blame game just continues. It's the serpent. Now Eve is being discipled by her husband and she shouldn't be. She's following in her husband's footsteps when she shouldn't be. It's always someone else's fault. We can read of people in the Bible that have been turned to a pillar of salt for less than this. So this blame game, it is as old as time. It is a consequence of sin and we do it too. We say things like, well, if this didn't happen, then I wouldn't have dot, 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 fill it in. Well, if he just wasn't so mean, I wouldn't react that way. Or here's one that we often use. I'm sorry, but. Remember the rich young ruler seeking to justify himself. It's hard to own your sin, ask for forgiveness, and leave it at that. Our sinfulness wants to blame others for our wrongs. There's only one proper response to God and to others, and it is, yes, I have sinned, and I ask your forgiveness. And that's it. So at this point here, we get through the blame game of verses 12 and 13. I hope this is a pretty dark picture for all of us as we consider this. It is a story, a story of lies, deception, self-exaltation, idolatry, false religion, guilt, 
fear, shame, blaming others, blaming God for sin. This is just 13 verses. Sounds like the script to a Hollywood movie. And what we have here in this final scene are three people lined up, three creatures lined up before the tribunal of God. Lined up before the tribunal of the Most High is the serpent, Eve, and Adam, all guilty of the highest crime, what R.C. would call cosmic treason. Now these guilty, miserable, poor, destitute rebels lie open to the wrath and justice of a holy God. And here it comes. Verse 14, the judgment of sin. The judgment of sin. He begins first with the serpent in verse 14. This is the pronouncement against the physical serpent. God turns to the serpent, no more questions. He has questioned Adam, he has questioned Eve, and it is as though God is saying, I have heard enough. As he focuses in right on that serpent, laser focus, I am acquainted with you from of old, Satan. You are the deceiver, you are the slanderer, that's what your name means. You've been kicked out of heaven. One third of the angels fell with you. You have now deceived and enabled my image bearers to sin. And you think you succeeded. But really, you have served to set up this moment. This pronouncement of judgment. Remember what Joseph said, what you meant for evil God meant for good what the serpent meant for evil. God meant it. He's not using it. He meant this for good. So to the physical snake, he he looks and says, cursed are you. You will slither on your belly. A snake that once had feet no longer. Your face will be to the ground. This is why we hate snakes. This is why I have a maybe an unhealthy fear of snakes. But then he turns to the spiritual snake, verse 15, and says, there will be enmity, this is hostility, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, or in some translations, it says offspring. Let's ask the question of this text here. What does God mean by the seed of the serpent? What he's referring to here is all the sons and daughters of Satan. Not the physical in the sense of, but spiritually. All people affected by the curse. All evil spirits, demons, and wicked men. They will be, what God is saying here in verse 15, is that they will be against the seed of the woman. And we have this peculiar, very peculiar phrase here. He says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." Some people might read this very literally and they might think, well, sure, the seed of the or the offspring of the woman, maybe children running around playing and they come across a snake slithering on its belly and they step on his head and it'll bruise the head of a snake and the snake might bite them on their foot. That would bruise their heel. I want to just clarify with you, for you, that that is absolutely not what God is saying at all. This is not the judgment that God is speaking of here. What we have here in verse 15 is a promise in the pronouncement of judgment. 
What God is promising to the serpent in his pronouncement of judgment is a hostility between the people of God and the people of Satan. It will be traced throughout the scriptures. Cain is, the, is of the seed of the serpent, while Seth is of the, the, the seed of the woman. This is why when you get to Genesis chapter 6 and you read about the sons of God and the daughters of man, you don't have to do science fiction to figure that out. It's the godly line versus the ungodly line. And so we have this one peculiar phrase, though, that we see here. Uh, certain translations don't even translate the word offspring. Others say offspring. It literally means seed here. And God is referring to the godly line from the woman that comes through this singular masculine pronoun. He. If we're reading this and we're thinking the offspring of the woman, shouldn't it say they? Who is the he of this passage? There's a specific person in mind here from the seed of the woman who will ultimately crush the head of the serpent, which is a fatal blow. He will suffer a blow as well. It'll be against his heel, which signifies that it will be a wound, but it will not be a crushing defeat. Brothers and sisters, we know who the he is of this passage. There's only one he this text could be speaking of, and it is the only one who's been truly born of the seed of a woman. Every person born of natural generation is born through the seed of a male, except for one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this was absolutely necessary because we know in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that sin came into the world through one man. In Adam, we all died. We've inherited the sin nature through our fraternal side. This is Paul's argument of Romans 5. So in order for someone to not inherit the sin nature, they must be born without a sinful father. We celebrated and thought of that in the, in the last few weeks, even a week ago. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. You see the he of Genesis three fifteen, the seed of the woman. It is the first coming promised of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. So it is in verse 15 that you have the promise of God of a Savior. And it is against the backdrop of the, one of the worst days in the history of humanity. You see, the gospel shines the brightest over, the, over against the backdrop of sin. Why do we see the stars at night? And we don't see them during the day. It is against the, 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 the darkness of night that the diamonds of God's grace shine the brightest. This is a beautiful verse. In this single verse, we learn so much about the character and nature of God. Let me just give you a few observations here. The verse 15. First, it is a gospel proclamation. And it is God declaring victory against the serpent. Yes, it will be an invitation to sinners, but the first gospel proclamation from God is victory to the serpent. 
Before God curses and covers Adam and Eve, there is a promise of hope. And one thing that is very important that we understand is that God's plan has always been salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. You see it here. It's in the pronouncement of judgment that God promises a salvation. You can trace this theme all the way through the scriptures. Think about Noah. As he's saved in his family, it's salvation through judgment. The whole world is condemned. You think about the Exodus as they make their way through the Red Sea and the parting of the sea and all of Pharaoh's army is destroyed at the salvation of God's people through judgment, through the exile and coming back. Salvation through judgment ultimately to where the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world hanging upon the cross. It is salvation through judgment. The judgment that is to fall upon us falls upon the head of the Son so that we might have salvation. We get to the final day. And on that final day, we call that the day of judgment. On Judgment Day, we will recognize and understand final salvation as we stand before the Lord. So beginning in Genesis 3.15, throughout the whole scriptures, until the consummation of, of, of the kingdom at the end of time, it has always been salvation through judgment. Now I've shared with you that this here was one of the darkest days in human history. We do recognize that there was one day darker. The day that Jesus had his heel bruised. When the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, went to the cross to bear the penalty for sinners, there on that Friday, truly a dark Friday, the first Black Friday, the perfect Son of God, God in human flesh, took upon himself the sins of his people to satisfy and exhaust the wrath of God against sin. And in those hours as he hung there, he paid in full the sins of his people. He didn't die for savability. He took names with him to the cross. He took, if you are in Christ, he took your name to the cross with him. For all of his people, past, present, and future, there he died on that cross and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He died bearing the penalty for the deception of sin. Nailed to the cross. Self-exaltation, idolatry, false religion. Guilt, fear, shame, blaming others, blaming God for sin. All nailed to the cross. Why didn't Adam and Eve, why were they allowed a second breath after all of that? Because the sin that they committed was going was to fall upon the head of the Son of God. He was going to bear that sin. Though Jesus was sinless, the perfect spot, the perfect lamb, spotless without blemish, God treated him as though he was Adam. God treated him as though he was Eve. God treated him as though he was you and me so that God can treat us as though we are his son, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Maybe some of you here today are struggling with the deception of sin or the consequences of sin. Friend, I want to encourage you to run. Run for your life. Not to the woods like Adam did. Run to the cross of Christ. Run to the Savior. Run to Him. Do you suffer with guilt? Understand for our sake, God made Him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The Father treated the Son as guilty so that He would declare you not guilty. Amen.
Do you suffer with fear? First John tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. The cross of Jesus Christ demonstrates perfect love that casts out fear. Yes, we fear God. But as our Father, are you covered in shame? From your past or even your present, maybe you wrestle with the haunting of old sins. Remember, past sins are meant to humble you, not to haunt you. Do you think maybe even how could God continue to love someone like me? Remember, he loved Adam and Eve and promised them a savior. Friend, you and I both know one who is greater than all of our sins. We know one that has borne the shame and reproach for sinners. So what are we to do? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith for who who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, now seated at the right hand of God. As the first Adam had his nakedness covered as a sign of grace, the second Adam, Jesus, hung on a cross naked, shamed as a sign of justice. We all who come by way of the cross confessing our sins and trusting in Jesus Christ are clothed in robes of righteousness. My filthy rags are removed. They have been washed away in blood. The perfect deeds of Jesus Christ credited to us by faith. Crucified, killed, and buried on Friday, but Sunday was coming. (laughs) And on that day, the God-man rose up, neatly folded, folded, folds the linen cloths. He doesn't need them anymore. He walks out of that grave by the spirit of his own power. And in in the... In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fatal death blow was delivered. The serpent's head was crushed that day. The resurrection of the Son of God is the Father's exclamation point on the life of Jesus Christ. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is the first coming promised. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have so loved sinners such as ourselves, that you would shower Adam and Eve with grace and mercy that you would not deal with them according to their iniquities. Yes, they would die, but not before giving a promise. That they would trust in faith, looking forward to the Savior to come. Father, we thank you that we have been called to be your people. That this gospel did not come to us in word only, but in power and demonstration of your spirit. You've convicted us of our sins. You've shown us the beauty of your Son. You've invited us. You have effectually called us. You have drawn us to yourself. Father, let us never lose the wonder of this as we look back on this dark day, but we also look forward with future hope that you will bring ultimate salvation in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen.